I wish I was so powerful that a glimpse of me could shake the leaves from her branches. Hello and welcome to Art Fictions, where you'll find stories of art and the art of stories. I'm Gillian Knipe, artist and creator of this podcast. But it's not all about me. Here's a warm welcome to today's host, the author and critic Elizabeth Fullerton, and her guest artist, Florence Peake. Together, they'll be talking about collapsing paintings and mark-making without sight, rigid heteronormative conventions, a perpetual fear of violence generated by the patriarchy, butch lesbians in the 70s, drag queens, sex workers and femmes, extractions of earthly matter and energy, the dance floor as a space for belonging and expression, splattering the audience with clay, tenderness and care, finding comfort in the face of shame, and encountering ourselves imaginatively in relation to objective reality. Time to hear all this from Florence and Elizabeth. Welcome to Art Fictions, Florence. For our discussion today, you've chosen the groundbreaking novel Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg, who is an activist, organiser, theorist and writer, which was first published by Firebrand Books in 1993. Stone Butch Blues is a historical fiction novel set in working-class town in upstate New York in the 1970s. The protagonist, Jess, is a butch lesbian who has a grim childhood as a permanent outcast, even from her own family. Her parents' way of addressing her gender nonconformity is to send her to a psychiatric institution. Life improves when she discovers a gay bar and finds true kinship among the close-knit community of drag queens, sex workers, butchers and femmes who frequent it. But before she even finishes high school, she's gang-raped by a group of football jocks, the first in a long line of brutal assaults meted out by police and straight men to her and other characters who do not meet society's rigid heteronormative conventions. There's a huge amount of warmth, humour and sex and sensuality in this important and educational book, but the overriding sense is of a persecuted community compelled by the patriarchy to live in perpetual fear of violence. Let's start by finding out, Florence, why you chose the book. It was one of my lockdown reads. It was in a break that me and my partner were having. And it was also when I decided to do a short fiction writing course with Juliet Jacks. Yeah, and if you don't know Juliet Jacks' writing, uh, they're a queer novelist and um, essayist and art writer as well. And um, amazing, amazing writer Mm. with their book called Variations, which I think I'll plug there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think they're completely kind of virtuosic in their their writing, actually. Um, So I read it and it was just a feeling of comfort and solidarity when mm. I was reading it, even though it's quite traumatic and harrowing yes. as a read. Totally. And just listening to you describe it then, I was just thinking of the different kind of lenses or the different levels that you could kind of go in and read it from. Mm. Mm. You know, um, yeah. you could read it as a love story, very, very beautiful descriptions of falling in love and infatuations to deep, heartfelt, tender yeah. love stories yeah. and, and heartbreak to an utter education Mm. on everything from homosexuality trans rights to the complexity of gender non-conforming bodies (laughs) all of these different Mm. ways of of being in the world in in Mm. relationship to gender 
I'm really aware as I'm as I'm, as we're having this discussion of being kind of a white femme, yeah. <laughs> you know, that can move very easily through the world, you know, yeah, especially yeah. in London in this queer bubble that I live in. So yeah. I'm kind of aware of that and how you know as soon as you move outside London, how different that relationship to totally. gender, you know, sexuality and everything is, as well as how different. Being born as a lesbian in the 1970s would have been. Uh, you could look, read the whole thing as a, as understanding how rape is weaponized and used as warfare totally. and a way of controlling oppressed people. Or, I think yeah. I was so shocked by the impunity of the police and just groups of straight men who just felt completely entitled to rape and beat up any of those people they found in the bars. I mean, and without any consequence whatsoever. You know, there was no sense that anyone was going to be punished or there was never going to be any justice. You know, Jess and all her friends knew that. There was, it was just how they had to face the world. And that was so disgusting. I guess I was so shocked by obviously the threat that straight men must have felt from, you know, these women who didn't want anything from them. They wanted to be left alone to live their lives and fall in love. And, you know, and I do think that Jess, all the beautiful relationships that she develops with different women are kind of destroyed, I think, by these horrific experiences she has because each time it's like chipping away at her self-esteem, her sense of worth. And in the end, and not in the end, but halfway through where, you know, she's with perhaps the love of her life, Teresa, in a really beautiful relationship, she decides to take hormones in part as a safety thing. That's it, as a way of protecting. Yeah, um, to pass as a man. To be able to pass as a man. And then Teresa says she um, won't. I I don't know how Leslie Feinberg identifies as it, like he, she, but throughout the Mm. book it's a he, she. Yeah, You know, so that's a kind of how we look back historically on the relationship to pronouns and how that's all changed as things. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? But also, Jess in the book starts off a butch lesbian where she feels really at home and then she starts taking hormones and eventually she stops and she's able to pass as a man and then she's kind of rejected by the lesbian community and even her partner Teresa says I don't want to be with a man I want to be with a butch and both of them are heartbroken but they end Eventually, um, Jess stops taking hormones, but kind of finds her her home with gender non-conforming community that isn't really the lesbian community anymore. It's a wider community, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah. And I, I think that that's something throughout the book, how support or communities are built and a collective support and solidarity, really, you know, and yeah. like exactly that, the how these, finding these different places of belonging. Yeah, And, totally. you know, these this tension or this relationship between isolation and belonging and mm. that I just find something that I'm continuously interested in in, in my own work. Um, that by the end, there is a sense of hope. And uh, I watched an interview with Leslie last night. She said, I wanted to write the book because I wanted to change the world. Yeah. So it has this kind of real feeling while you're reading it of, a, of someone who has a very kind of passionate investment in the bookers and activism. You know, it was really, I want to, I want this to be accessible to uh, working class people. I want this to be accessible to um, anyone that is 
exploring these different issues to do with non-gender conforming bodies and this is open access it's yeah. free mm -hmm. so you can download it can print on demand because after being published by was it firebrand but yeah, yeah. Uh, leslie went to court to regain all yes. the rights yes, so yes. that it could then become a, a book that was completely free and could be accessible by anybody. So yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of active on lots of different levels. Yeah, this book, and in, in fact, way. people wanted to adapt it for film and yeah. someone wanted to do a cartoon version and she refused because she didn't like their take on the book. Mm. So she, she said at the start of the 2003 edition, with this novel, I planted a flag. Here I am. Does anyone want to discuss these important issues? I wrote it not as an expression of individual high art, but as a working class organiser mimeographs a leaflet, a call to action. So Leslie saw it as yeah. a, an important galvaniser. And at the start of the 20th edition, which is the one you download on the website, there's a dedication to a trans woman of colour, C.C. MacDonald, who had been yeah. arrested because she was attacked by a neo-Nazi and jailed. Yeah, I, I also found that the relationship with sex workers and the harrowing lack of care around that profession and the tenderness and, and the inclusivity between butchers and femmes are really beautiful. And the slow dance, I feel like, as a kind of metaphor of this kind of chemistry and this intimacy between bodies, this kind of dropping into a kind of communicating between bodies of difference and I suppose I thought a lot about me and Eve while reading those descriptions and it's terribly yeah. kind of romantic and sloppy both of us are dancers and you know a lot of the practices are to do with kind of somatic listening to the yeah. interiority of the body and um, you know something that's very kind of beautiful as a resource and very privileged to be in a kind of romantic relationship with someone that has that language of movement and dance and very very present to the nuances of moving and the space between one body and another and the kind of chemistry of that and um i kept whenever i was reading these sort of this motif of the slow dance it feels like those bars were kind of humming with sexual tension and yeah, <laughs> all kinds charged. of things charged mm. yeah. yeah and i think that's a continuous place of home for a lot of gay people is you know the bar there's only one lesbian bar in the whole of the UK. <laughs> so it's kind of things Don't like... Don't Yeah, yeah, the she bar in Soho. And, you know, oh it's, Ducky is a great resource as well. And Ten years ago, I got commissioned to do a piece of choreography for Ducky of a butch femme bar fight. Because um, there used to be a lesbian bar in the 1950s called Gateways off the King's Road. Mm -hmm. And it's featured in The Killing of Sister George. And uh, it's renowned for these kinds of fights that are de described here in this book. The dance floor as a place of belonging for a lot of non-gender conforming bodies. You know, it's a, the dance floor is a, a space for belonging. Yeah. And then that's safe or yeah. a place to express all these different kinds of parts of our our self, our bodies, our presentation, our you know how we explore ourselves, how yeah. that was described. So that drew me a lot to the, the novel as well. And presumably that care idea, because care is quite strong in your practice as well, the idea of caring um, yeah. and consent, which seems to only really be present in the book 
within that space of the bar and in the home yeah. space on the streets it's not there at all it's absent in the workspace it's virtually absent i mean there is that camaraderie between workers which is great when they're organizing and stuff and there's the one straight man character who is a really lovely guy is a communist who's duffy yeah he's the union organizer but he's the only one who has any understanding or who's a decent male yeah in the book but yeah, care just seems so absent. I was so shocked. The ones who were targeted the worst seemed to be the butchers, mm. didn't they? Yeah, exactly. And I think um, the the history of violence and, you know, the persecution that on a daily basis this was happening. And I think that, that happens today for trans people. So that's something that is so powerful is the kind of gaslighting of abuse not being believed and things again as you say if anyone has any doubts about the discomfort the threat the real danger that a gender non-conforming person faces in going yeah. into a male toilet it's yeah. terrifying i mean jess at several points opts not to go to the toilet and you know suffer the sort of discomfort in order not to face that risk but was there any passage that you particularly wanted oh, yeah. to read out? You know, I think that I am quite romantic at heart. As I'm still sort of find that kind of teenage infatuation quite a kind of beautiful thing. This is about Jess's being in awe of Rocco. Oh, Rocco, yeah. So, but um, I think that actually Rocco is a trans man. So um, this, they're in the, the bar. Hello, Edna. Rocco answered in a deep timbre. Their faces were close to each other and to mine. I could see the beard stubble on Rocco's chin and cheeks. Jan once told me that Rocco had been bitten up so many times nobody could count. The last time the cops beat her up, she came close to dying. Jan heard that Rocco had taken hormones and had breast surgery. Jan said Rocco wasn't the only he, she, who'd done that. It was a fantastic tale. I'd only half believed it, but it haunted me. No matter how painful it was to be a he, she, I wondered what kind of courage was required to leave the sex he had always known or to live so alone. I wanted to know Rocco. I wanted to ask her a million questions. I wanted to see the world through her eyes. But most of all, I wanted her to be different than me. I was afraid to see myself in Rocco. I watched Edna's face. She held herself with such strength and dignity. It made the pain she tried to conceal all the more obvious. I trembled at my nearness to two such powerful women. Rocco touched Edna's elbow. Edna rose and led Rocco to a table in the back room. I sat alone, shaken. I felt left out, jealous. I hungered for the attention of both women. As I stole a glance back at Edna, I longed for her to look at me that way. I wish I was so powerful that a glimpse of me could shake the leaves from her branches. And I wanted Rocco to be my friend, to reveal all the secrets of the universe we revolved in. I wanted her as a home to come to when I wasn't strong. Rocco stood up. Edna held onto Rocco, Rocco's leather lapels. Their lips touched briefly. Then Rocco turned to go. I wish Rocco could have seen the look on Edna's face after her back was turned. It might have meant a lot to her. Rocco was heading toward me to go out the door. I searched my brain to think of something to say to make her stop and talk. 
Maybe the pained look on my face made her pause in front of me. For just a moment, doubt flickered across Rocco's face. I saw her guard begin to go up. I couldn't think of what to do, so I extended my hand to her. She looked at it, then she glanced at my other hand, all bandaged, that looked like part of a robot. As she shook my hand, she nodded, and then she left the bar. The sound level rose again. I felt empty and hollow with loss. If I ached, I knew Edna must be bleeding. I waited a decent amount of time before I went back to her. Can I buy you a drink? Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Funnily enough, by the end, she, she occupies a similar space to Rocco. All those, those things that are mm. inside her yearning, she kind of does manage to, mm. to access in the end. Yeah. And I, I think that's very interesting, that process that uh, Jess goes on of becoming a stone butch to then opening again in yeah. some way. Um, yeah. But with, with that idea, the kind of presentation of, of being unfeeling and, and being able to, I suppose, hold up against all the brutality and being able to face, you know, and harden up. As a reader, you're kind of let into this really deep emotional part of Jess. So there's this kind of aware of the presentation in the world, but also this interiority. Yeah. I know that is what, what the amazing thing about literature is. You're kind of let into the interiority of characters. Yeah, because yeah. she tells us we get access to thoughts and feelings that she often isn't able to express mm. to the women she loves and yeah. she wishes she did yeah and there's i remember there's really heartbreaking moment where she pours her heart out to teresa and is stroking her hair one evening and teresa's asleep and teresa says oh did you say something and she's like no it's okay this is all the stuff i can't tell you and then yeah. her partner's asleep yeah i thought this one quote i have which is very short which is I thought was really sad how she expresses to Teresa how she feels she's just so desperate at that point that she has to take some action and she decides to take testosterone and she says, honey, I've got to do something. I've been fighting to defend who I am all my life. I'm tired. I just don't know how to go on anymore. This is the only way I can think of. I can still be me and survive. I just don't know any other way. Mm. And Teresa can't accept it, sadly. And I'm not blaming anyone for that, but, you know, it's just really sad that the situation's so horrific. Yeah, they have to split up, yeah. Yeah. You know, in that case, it was about survival, but, you know, taking hormones. What that is today is a very joyous thing, you know, or that's an amazing thing. And then I wanted to talk about the reading of the book around organising and collectivity and community. So it did kind of offer some hope when Jess comes to New York, that for me was something that I'm really drawn to is how do we find comfort and the whole through kind of abuse or brutalization how shame is used often as a way of controlling and manipulating and how we internalize that and quite often maybe the only way to dispel that or take the power from shame is to find Mm. communities or places of identification or places where we can come out that kind of isolation yeah this is one of these moments where uh, Jess goes to a protest rally and um, is listening to trans speakers. It's just a little quote. As she climbed down from the stage, I thought, this is what courage is. It's not living through the nightmare. It's doing something with it afterwards. It's being brave enough to talk about it to other people. 
it's trying to organise to change things. And suddenly I felt so sick to death of my own silence that I needed to speak too. And then she comes up and speaks on stage about her experiences. And it's like this coming out of shame, coming out of hiding, mm. coming out of that kind mm. of isolation. And I, you know, I think around all different kinds of recovery groups or different 12-step programs or all these things that are ways of coming out of isolation to name and start speaking. Like yes. that. So I find that really beautiful. And then in the speech or in the talking on the stage, um, Jess says, I don't know what it would take to really change the world but couldn't we get together and try to figure it out? Couldn't the we be bigger? Isn't there a way we could help fight each other's battles so that we're not so alone? You know, I suppose it's a bit cheesy in some ways, but there is a cheesiness here in the book, but it's kind of reframed in a very beautiful way, really. This is a struggle for life. And you get the, the optimism in the book at the end is that you feel like she's going to really start taking action and, and she is going to change yeah. things. And of course, Leslie then did achieve huge amounts and change. Like, I know this is yeah. not autobiographical, but there are autobiographical elements yeah. in the book. Yeah. So there are synergies with your art practice, with particularly with, with works like Crude Care, yeah. which we're going to be discussing in the next part of the programme. So Florence, you're a dancer and choreographer, incorporating drawing, painting, sculpture and text in your expanded performative practice, mm. rooted in the body's materiality and physicality. All these disciplines are closely intertwined and interconnected in your work, but you're probably best known for your incredibly visceral performances involving the audience and materials. For instance, you performed an intimate duet with your partner Eve Stainton at the 2019 Venice Biennale called Apparition Apparition, a sensual work that conflates themes of marginalised intimacy with trauma and environmental devastation, which I was lucky to see. And you've choreographed dancers performing with several tonnes of mud <laughs> in an ecstatic, primordial, anarchic interpretation of Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring at the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, Somerset House and the Delaware Pavilion. So on the subject of clay and picking up on our earlier reference to activism, perhaps you could talk a little bit about your work, Crude Care, that was commissioned mm. for the British art show yeah, line. Yeah. I think my work is uh, political and I have done certain kinds of actions in relationship, but I think, you know, when I meet like true activists, you know, that kind of thing where somebody's really laying their life on the line, part of the British art show was a lot of us withdrew because of relationships to uh, censorship around Palestine and, and working at that moment or hearing from real people doing real activism <laughs> I felt like oh this puts me to shame you know like uh, you know I, I think there is you know different degrees of what you can do on that on that level yeah but um Crude Care worked with care workers during COVID up in Aberdeen. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was making, drawing this correlation between the extractive industries around Aberdeen, which are through granite and oil and these are kind of great kind of plummeting into the earth and kind of carving of the landscape and, you know, quite kind of violent actions on, on the landscape. 
and in relationship mm. to extracting Earth's energy. And I was making this correlation to care workers in COVID, of this kind of extraction of labour, this extraction of human energy and this exploitation of work and care, really. I worked with about five care workers from different kind of caring professions like nursing, youth work, people that, that are relatives that care for their father or, mm-hmm. you know, so different, different kinds of care work. And I buried one of them under this pit of clay and extracted uh, his body from the clay. So the sculpture is this kind of erupted form. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a kind of burial ritual and it's, a, it's quite a beautiful thing. I've, I've done it a few times. And so it does feel very much like going into this kind of deep womb-like process. It's very kind of comforting and the, the weight of the clay and... A kind of quite dark space and um yeah it's beautiful you mm. know as a as an experience even yeah. though it looks very frightening and yeah. this course has quite a lot of very strong kind of imagery around death and this kind of process extracting this body and with Anna Tetzlav beautiful filmmaker we made a little uh, film of that process but there were a few care workers weren't there who were yeah we did we did lots of um processes and workshops Mm. with them but then it was just me i did a burial and kirsty richardson who's a care worker as well but also a dancer Mm -hmm. and then um al solomon yeah yeah yeah. and i i saw an interview with him saying how he was worried it was going to feel claustrophobic but he said it was um it felt like a rebirth for him it was really profound experience yeah i'm glad glad by i wanted it to be it was a lot of prep it wasn't just like <laughs> shoving <Yeah>. someone <laughs> under a load of clay. There is quite a lot of considered thinking through it before actually going into it. How the, the clay is constructed is with a lot of air holes and things yeah. like that. Just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they're not going to suffocate. No, it's not. It's, it's very well thought out. Yeah. And, but it is, it's still quite a kind of deep experience to kind yeah. of go into. So that was a film, a performance with text and this ceramic sculpture. I, I was lucky to see it in Plymouth and it, it looked very raw it was a sort of red colour wasn't it yeah I wanted to use the colour red just because of this mm. kind of vitality yeah. of blood or, or these essential resources from the earth or from mm. our body you know this kind of sense of the things this kind of being taken from us you know I think I think during Covid there was this sense of feeling of depletion and extraction of, of things that were really essential and vital in society and in, in the earth and in ourselves really. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I'm wondering, you've worked a lot with clay in your practice, mm. what draws you back again and again to clay? I think it's a hugely queer medium. I think it's really alchemical. It's changing state. It's very plastic. Mm-hmm. It's continuously shifting and changing. So it only kind of really finds fixity when it's through temperature, through right. heat. I love that through these different states that the clay moves through, that it kind of can kind of have an effect on my physicality, my mm-hmm. body, my um chemistry as well yeah yeah my physiological states as well so there's this transferable quality and I think of it often as a psychic medium like a vehicle that can transfer or transform different states as well Mm. with the six tons of clay that was very much working with the clay to choreograph the body so if it's more like 
the clay is saturated with water, then you basically can't step on it. You have to be kind of slipping and sliding and doing yeah. the kind of Carolee Sheeman-ish kind of meat joy-esque yeah. kind of <laughs> thing. But I can't remember what artist said that the clay is hysterical. You shouldn't touch it. So if anybody knows who that is. But there is this Brilliant. kind of completely unwieldy, uncontrollable element to mm. it. And then there's this kind of thing of you can, you know, you mould it, you can imprint into it and then when it's in its more kind of gacky stage or, Mm. you know, there's this kind of place there you can build onto the body and it can become things, (laughs) you know, um, or then it's dust. And presumably it's in this very slippage and this sort of appearance of chaos that when you talk about it being a queer medium, it's this precise slipperiness or changeability, transformability that you're appreciating in it oh yeah Yeah. that's exactly it's queer it's it's continuously transforming it's molding itself so I mean my relationship to it is through dance and through movement Mm, and mm. kind of somatic explorations so how the interiority of the body meets this um this substance I teach it a lot as a workshop with dancers and with you know our students and things and you know it's it's great fun but it, it's a very intoxicating immersive material you know I'm not a typical ceramicist in any sense you know I'm not technical with it at all I suppose because it, it's earth it's very crude in its reference it's not mm. a substance then that has gone through lots of different processes it's very kind of in its raw state it's unapologetic about what it is And how does the body function as a site of protest? Because that was definitely something Mm. you were talking about. But in your work, in like Rite of Spring, for instance, you've talked about the body being a sort of site of protest. Yeah, I I feel really like these works that I made prior to to Brexit, prior to (laughs) COVID COVID and Black Lives Matter and all of these things, you know, there was this naivety, I feel like now, you know, about them. Right, spring was like almost like how do you perform this as a protest against restriction or conformity and conservatism in relationship to the body and and this was thought of in relationship to 1913 with that being kind of mirror when the right string was first formed yeah and there was this big riot in yeah post first world wars you know lead up to the second world war yeah. there was the rise of fascism there was fracturing of europe then and then so i was kind of thinking a lot around mm, that mm. you know yeah and then you know Brexit came came in, and all that. So it was it was really how then can we perform this as a real protest and action? Again, this idea of a kind of floor or a dance floor or a, a space, a stage as a thing that action can kind of happen onto, um, a protest can happen onto. These spaces, these kind of communal spaces. Are, are very powerful in that way and you know, these huge chunks of clay that the dancers would hurl into the space and the audience would get covered in clay as well. It, it felt for me like something, this isn't just something that you kind of peer into and look into, I think which is sometimes what can happen with staging is this, there's this thing happening over there, kind of how we experience things in life, there's this drama happening over there and we're somehow disembodied or disconnected from it. And I wanted this kind of sense that through the first half of the performance, the audience quite feeling quite safe. Oh, look at, you know, (laughs) there's this thing happening. There's this kind of Petri dish or there's this micro world happening in this pit of clay. And it's, you know, we can look into it. And then the second half is the... Comes back out of it. Yeah, it's kind of the audience getting splashed and... Yeah. 
in the Delaware Pavilion, everyone wore kind of protective clothes <laughs> and ponchos. <laughs> and ponchos, <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah, because it's often said about your work that you create these alliances, these temporary alliances, these micro-communities. How important is the connection with the audience? Because in Apparition, Apparition in Venice, you, you and Eve came out and invited it was totally consensual you invited yeah. us you gave us permission to make marks on your bodies yeah we didn't have to if we didn't want to but we yeah, you know most people yeah, wanted to yeah. and there was a freeing element with yeah. that but how how important is that that connection with audiences in yeah. your work yeah i i love to try and cultivate a rapport with the audience i mean different works kind of do different things mm. or different ideas require different kind of gesture or um, connection with with audiences it depends what you're wanting to kind of do with it but you know my work voicings is very much about it's a channeling work where there's a very kind of deep communicative experience with the audience where there's almost like mm. kind of conversations continuously happening but with Apparition, apparition, yeah, Eve and I, we had a, these um, workman's belts yeah. were filled with pens and we sort of wandered in and out of the seating where the audience were. And we had different kind of methods of invitation and different methods that people could use that kind of gathered as, I suppose people felt more and more safe and people could always refuse to do this. So one of the methods was to hold the pen, the, the audience member to hold the pen very still in their hands and then I would move my face over the pen or sometimes you would say you know oh I'm really desiring that you you do these particular kinds of pen marks in a very fast vigorous manner along my leg or I want you to draw a line very slowly from my middle finger all the way up my arm to my shoulder so it was not just about kind of making marks, it was mm. about kind of the different kind of rhythms and dynamics and gestures and qualities of connection Yeah, that yeah. you that these marks were being made in. You know, so it was very intimate because, you know, we, we were topless with with just these, um, God, I completely forgotten, workman belts. Yeah, yeah tool were, belts, tool belts. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> we were thinking of these things, tool belts for the apocalypse, you know, these kind of things as well. So and then we went on to the main big stage and then performed different stationary sculptural positions for quite long periods of time holding these positions until we ended up slipping mm. so again this idea of the slippage of this kind of marking the lesbian body the the periphery haunting the center mm. those kind of ideas yeah yeah you described it very well before actually yeah. <laughs> another work i'm keen to discuss too is your performance factual actual at the national gallery in december yeah. 2021 it was part of the gallery's live work series, Dance to the Music of Our Time, commissioned in response to its Poussin show that year. Yeah. <laughs> and you choreographed five dancers to interact with four monumental canvases painted by you that they lowered down from the ceiling, free of frames. And I was wondering, to what extent was your conception of the piece determined by the site? Specifically the fact that the gallery houses a huge collection of white supposed masters which line the walls in an orderly fashion in their frames all looking neat yeah, and perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, th I said that I wanted a room, I did a bit of a diva number, but I wanted a room without paintings and they happened to redecorating some space mm. so it was within I think the Spanish 
1500s or something, that kind of collection of their paint. There was a a spare room there, actually, very close to this burgundy kind of brocade wallpaper, you know, and it was just, it was wonderful to have that space. But I really wanted to look at this idea of the kind of violence behind the kind of infrastructure of kind of classical painting, Western painting, Mm. and its relationship to colonialism in that way, especially the colonial monster, the National Gallery, you know, with all its wonderful stuff and glory but you know there's also all the the narratives are mainly from white western culture and so wanted to look at those kind of ideas around representation and literally collapse the painting yeah so the paintings are only laid out in their full and the face of the painting is figurative that Mm -hmm. I did with the dancers so these different methods I use in factual actual of drawing around bodies as they're moving and then I start to edit and think mm-hmm. about the kind of factual body this transcribing movement verbatim but then how we think about the body as the fictional body or the sensorial body how we experience our bodies and the kind of schism between the outside reality you know documentation or you know the objective body and our interior sense of ourselves you Mm, know and how mm. disturbing that is how exciting that is and you know it relates a lot to stone butch blues how we experience ourselves inside and how we kind Mm. of meet the meet the world and i find that continuously disturbing you know an idea i might have of my sensuality and my body and how it's moving through the world or and and also how beautiful that is you know i have this experience of how long this arm is and that it could be stroking the ceiling or you know it curls into a snake and it drops over or i have multitudinous breasts how we counter ourselves imaginatively but in relationship to these objective realities so the face of these figurative paintings is actually that and then the dancers throw these canvases around collapse them open them up wrap the audience in them fold their own bodies into so part of the performance is that they are completely encased in the canvas and disappear and become kind of sculptural blobs yeah. in space. So there's mm-hmm. yeah all of these very different ways of encountering this fabric, this 2D surface that's shifting and transforming. Again, this kind of queer strategy of yeah. something that's can mutable, fluid and malleable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why did you call it factual actual? do it this kind of factual marking of the body and then the mm. actual reality of how we're perceiving ourselves so that that sort of inner outer yeah yeah, yeah. interesting yeah. okay and factual actual is getting another iteration which we're going to discuss but first i wanted to just quickly ask as we're entering the final part yeah. of our discussion uh, if there are any artists or exhibitions past or present which have particularly inspired you you fall in love with things, drop things, get bored of things the whole time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and generally I'd say conversation is something that impacts me very strongly. So fr- friends of mine, artist friends of mine, people that I'm intimate and close with, you know, um, Gabby Agis, Joe Moran, Ty Shani, Mercedes Grower, they're all artists and filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, Eve Stainton, my partner... All of these people have a huge influence on me on my practice because we talk very deeply about issues and art. 
my dad, Fabian Peake, I, you know, I love talking to my father about work. Let's just say um, quickly here, he's a poet and an artist. Yeah, and no, he's right. got multidisciplinary yeah. practice, <laughs> yeah, he's a writer, yeah. and he also makes extraordinary textile works as well. Okay. So, um, but I think artists maybe have this kind of multidisciplinary process, and I think probably long-lasting were in my teenage years. But, you know, Michael Clark, it was a massive moment seeing I Am A Curious Orange with The Fall playing live, which is a Amazing. punk band. Yeah. And Lee Bowery, seeing Lee Bowery perform Did with and all the body map costumes. And, of course, okay. you know, it's a gay, queer... You know, I don't think I knew it then when I was 14, yeah. but of course, you know, that was something that I loved. I loved camp. So to seed. Yeah. And all I could think about the whole time was performances and how to do it. You know, I want to drive motorbikes on stage. I want to, you know, uh, have like loads of men in kind of fluffy pink outfits. You know, I remember really thinking <laughs> of that, like obsessed. From seeing those that early and on. Thing, and yeah. lots of other things, like Cameron yeah. Armitage and like dance work that I was exploring mm. then. You know, and then I went mm. on to work with Gabby Agus, who'd worked with Michael Clark for 20 years or something, you yeah. know. Um, so, Kate Bush and working with Lindsay Kemp, you know, these all these artists that have these very theatricality, I guess, to their, yeah. to their work. And I think I love theatricality in painting. But then a lot of minimalists are so theatrical. You know? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, but I mean, we're not thinking like Donald Judd. But I think I do remember seeing Donald Judd work when I was younger and loving its theatricality, yeah. actually. You it know? is theatrical in yeah, a yeah. strange, minimal way, yeah. isn't it? But it's... then now I think it looks like a lot of Ikea or... Well, yeah. It's decorating, <laughs> doesn't it? So, you know, know. It's, it's very kind of domestic. Yeah, because yeah. you're you're in a show at the moment, um, Body Poetics, um, yeah. at uh, Giant in Bournemouth. You, mm. You're often mentioned in the same breath as Carolee. You mentioned Meet Joy, Carolee Schneeman. But, I mean, in, in the sense of expanded practice, there is a similarity yeah. there of not sticking with the discipline and just moving beyond. But the way she, she would be on a harness painting and performatively yeah, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. But I think that whole era and Judson Church yeah. and Yvonne Rayner and exactly. then Rosemary Butcher came from, you know, Rosemary Butcher was in, incredible uh, choreographer that, um, you know, I was lucky enough to many times do their classes, you know. Oh, fantastic. There's a place called Independent yeah. Dance in uh, Elephant and Castle um, at Siobhan Davis Studios, mm-hmm. which, you know, everyone should know about. You know, class is only at four quid, um, yeah. five quid, and you get to work with, I taught there all last week, and, you know, you get to work with all these incredible practitioners. Wow. Seraphin 1369 teaches there, you know, uh, Rosemary Butcher, that's where I did all the classes with her, you know, so uh, there's these incredible resources about. Yeah, legendary. Um, yes. Yeah. Carly Schumann's work, I think, you know, this big 50 metre canvas that I've just done. <laughs> yes, I want to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that was what, you know, so that kind mm. of part of why I'm thinking about the Stone Butch Blues as well as these kind of methods of, you know, collectivity and community and thinking about kind of working with these groups at Southwark Park Gallery, where my show will be on, with this, these different groups of people, we will be making this 50 metre painting that will wrap around the inside of the Lake Gallery at Southwark Park. Yes. I think that the process has been quite intense because 
it's a similar process as marking around the body through particular dance techniques that are very kind of to do with the interiority of exploration with the body and the movement and the dancing was to do with a kind of disorientation of the body disorientating our experience of how we we kind of explore kind of marking and measuring our relationship to people so a lot of the Mm -hmm. processes with the eyes closed so the mark making is from those processes and so it's getting it back to my studio where I worked on five meters to seven meters at a time wild orgy like (laughs) gestures and actions and it Jordan McKenzie another wonderful painter that um he kind of came like well it looks like you know 1970s performance art you know your generic stuff doesn't it you know and it was quite like a you know oh my god yeah it's like kind of Carolee Sheeman kind of art making (laughs) you know um so how do how do I you know even though I love that lineage how do you kind of then sort of move that gesture into something else yeah take it forward yeah yeah. or abstract your side to allow it to speak a bit more broadly and so I was kind of interested in more like how the um these kind of new narratives or new fictions Mm. could kind of emerge so a lot of that process when I get back to the studio is about kind of editing adding to enhancing reframing how bringing out certain how certain bodies are kind of relating to others seeing other shapes like animals and other kinds of fictions and intensities between the different forms Mm so so that movement mark making process is just the one one layer and then it starts to kind of become more and more layers of ideas and concepts as well as paint i want to i want to just interrupt here to just just explain that this is for your big show coming up at Southwark Park Galleries yeah. in April. Right? Yeah, April, April the 15th. 15th yeah. Exactly. And it's going to be travelling and it's called Factual Actual Ensemble. Ensemble. So it's another iteration of the National Gallery, but you're you're developing it around this 50 metre canvas, yeah. which you've created with different communities in workshops was it yeah we i worked with seniors group Mm. then uh family groups and then uh young adults oh right yeah yeah so they've all contributed their marks yeah yeah what instructions and they're all credited Mm. and if anyone ever wants to buy the work we'll be splitting percentages (laughs) (laughs) but how what instructions did you give them how did those workshops happen? Um, How did they go about? So through movement processes that deliberately shift our way of perceiving what up and down is, what kind of, you know, that's not a knee, yeah. <laughs> texture. So it's really about highlighting or privileging or bringing a strong awareness to our sensate, our sensorial communication and language between each other. So... That there's a, a deep encounter with the kind of interiority of the feeling sense mm-hmm, and feeling mm-hmm. states even. Yeah, you know? yeah. So that's you know that's for about kind of hour and a half before wow. we went we went into the big main Dilston Grove Church where the where the canvases were laid flat on the floor and then we went into a kind of extension of that movement task in pairs marking around our bodies. Then to open your eyes after that, you know, kind of going into this very kind of other altered state, really, that it becomes very intense experience, the witnessing of colour, marking, moving, still with this kind of very intimate sense of oneself and Mm. another person. Mm. 
And so how will that present be presented in your show? You'll be doing, there'll be performances? Yeah, in Dillsford mm. Grove will be performances and a kind of development of the National Gallery piece. Right. And then in Lake Gallery will be the 50 metre painting, encasing, enveloping the whole space. Fantastic. And that's travelling on to... Fruit, Fruit Market, Market in Edinburgh and also Towner in Eastbourne. Eastbourne yeah. So this is a huge deal, Florence. You're on a roll. Oh yeah, I'm very lucky. Yeah, yeah I'm really lucky to have this. Um, yeah, the opportunity to kind of to involve lots of people and. Yeah, and yeah. you also have a show coming up, a solo show at Richard Saltoon. Yeah, in called March. Enactment, and it's kind of documentation from the natural, National Gallery. It's kind of drawing, like, scenes from those performances, and it kind of is a whole critique on the nature of painting, subverting ideas around painting and um, a kind of excessive um, examination of painting. A lot of the canvases are kind of folded again and, and kind of interactive, actually. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, um, and then we can also see your work um, at the moment in Earth Spells. You're in a group show, another group show, Witches of the Anthropocene, yeah. alongside other artists like Grace Njuritu and Emma Hart at the gallery known as Ram in Exeter. Yeah. So you're really on a roll. You, you're doing amazing things right now. It's fantastic. It's yeah, fantastic it's nice, thing. you know, yeah. as we know, it ebbs and flows, you know. Yeah. They've got to ride, ride the different kind of waves of what the, what the art world is like, yeah. 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 And my last question would be, what's on your bookshelf? What, what else um, are you reading? I've got... Uh, uh, variations Juliet Jacks um, in the Dream House by Continent Maria Machado yeah. I've just read it myself it's yeah. amazing um, Octavia Butler and then I've got quite a lot of theory that I'm enjoying at the moment yeah I've come completely back <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's fine yeah. oh well thank you so yeah. much thank you uh, thank you listeners and thank you so so much to Florence it's been amazing for being on Art Fictions a huge thanks to our listeners, guest artist Florence Peake, and today's host, Elizabeth Fullerton. You can support this podcast through following, rating, emailing us your thoughts directly, artfictionspodcast at gmail.com, and via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. Credit where it's due, Art Fictions was recorded by Andy Armishar, and an unedited, filmed version can be viewed on Cubic Community Radio's YouTube and Mixcloud. For this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our Jolly logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time.